You're listening to the politicalbetting.com Polling Matters podcast. My name is Kieran Pedley. Well, on this week's show, we're going to be taking a bit of a break from Brexit. I know it doesn't sound very plausible, but we will. To talk about the NHS. It's the NHS's 70th birthday this year, so we're breaking out the cake and the candles, but also some numbers to look at what the public's perceptions of the NHS are at this momentous uh, milestone in its history. The government has announced a new policy of putting more money in this week. We're going to be looking at what the underlying uh, perceptions are of the service uh, among the public, what people think of the policy and what the uh, political ramifications might be, both in policy terms and in support for different parties in Westminster. We're also going to be taking time to do drugs, uh, not literally, of course, but to talk about uh, some changes in policy on uh, medicinal use of cannabis that seem to be coming down the line. But we're going to be talking a little bit more about um, that policy, yes, but also just uh, attitudes to drug policy more generally uh, in the UK, because that's something that we haven't talked about a lot on this show. And uh, my podcaster in crime, Leo Brassi, uh, used to work in the sector and knows a fair bit about it. So without further ado, uh, let me introduce Leo to the podcast. Leo, good to see you again. Hello, Kieran. Um, so lots to lots to cover. I mean, it's been. I mean, let's start with the NHS. Um, it, it seems to be like the government's really made a big pitch this week, hasn't it, on on, on, on a big policy change? Right. So it's made this announcement of um, well, it depends a bit about how you calculate it, but we can call it twenty billion pounds extra a year. Um, that seems to be sort of the agreed upon figure among uh, most of the media, um, which obviously is a big number, but. I mean, to be honest, for me, it feels a bit like that's unraveled within the first couple of days on two fronts. So firstly, there has been, I think, quite reasonable analysis comparing that to the long term rate of increase of funding uh, of the NHS over its history, uh, which typically has been around 4%. This increase would be 3.4%, so below that long term rate. Um, and below the rate of um, increase over recent decades. So the sort of the extent of the generosity has been called into question. And then there's been this other point of um, where the money is coming from. Uh, Obviously, the idea of there being a Brexit dividend has been touted around um, with less clear uh, pledges or suggestions of tax rises and possibly spending cuts in other areas. But nonetheless, clearly this is popular. Um, it has the potential to tap into the 350 million a week line of the Leave campaign. Um, but I mean, well, I threw out that it's popular. Is is that right? I mean, what 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 the what does the public think? I mean, I get the impression the NHS is is important, but. Are people sort of saying that this is that extra money like this is essential? Well, I've been doing some work on this this week, um, and I think it's first of all it's probably worth putting some of these some of these numbers uh, into context. The first thing, I mean, we, we use this phrase national religion, don't we, a lot? You, and I, I don't like the phrase in a way uh, when we talk about the NHS because it's a bit it's a bit pejorative, isn't it? It's, it's kind of it's quite patronising. It is patronising because it because it's obviously it would be absurd for uh, health, a service, public service, to be a religion. But I understand where people come from when they use that term, right? Because the, it is some the NHS is something that is very hard to debate rationally, in my opinion. But I think the most important thing from before we get to the policy is to talk about what people think of the NHS generally. So depending on what pollster you look at, the NHS right now is either the number one issue, so opinion have it top of their issues tracker list. 
So most pollsters will have um, a question along the lines of what are the most important issues facing the country? Opinion have 64% saying the NHS, uh, only 45% saying Brexit. YouGov have almost the reverse with the NHS uh, being second place to Brexit. Um, but I think that in my head, I don't even think that the position relative to Brexit matters so much. I don't know what you think. To me, I think that Brexit is kind of this almost separate issue that's all encompassing, whereas personally, I look at the NHS alongside more standard um, public policy issues. Uh, I don't know, like education or crime or immigration uh, is one that's often been number one in in the recent past. So the point is, um, in terms of public opinion at the moment, the NHS is bang up there um, as as an issue. Uh, It does, just to jump in there, I mean, that's... That's obviously a really interesting point and one that I think I struggle with. Um, and um, I think the reason for that is obviously it, it typically does well in the issues polls. And it's also the case in Mori, who have an unprompted list, unlike the others, um, that it, I think it's it's second in their issues index. But, but the thing is, I think we know that it always does well. But when it comes to party politics, where at least I tend to assume that for some reason, and I think this is a fairly widespread view in sort of um, political analysis, for some reason, it's sort of taken as a given and it isn't something that actually drives people's votes, that it's just sort of there, people say they're worried about it, but for some reason, it's sort of, yeah, Labour hit the Tories on the NHS and that's that, and it's just in one corner and it's priced into everything and it kind of can't really change stuff. But I don't know. I'm not sure. Is the evidence well, actually? Well, I, I think I, I think you could say that about most issues, right? I mean, this this goes. I mean, we could probably do a whole podcast about what what drives people's votes. I'm always very skeptical that one individual issue is going to ever drive uh, people to the polls. I think that it's, there's a constant battle. It's a general perception around competence, around leadership, around are the parties in touch with the relevant issue, um, the relevant issue of the day, whatever that might be. And you, you'll you'll forever find the two main parties trying to accentuate the positive um sort of uh put, put down the negative um so that you know the tories will always try and um neutralize the nhs as an issue labor will always try and neutralize the economy as an issue because they don't they don't see it as their trump card and so on and so forth so right so it's not something that um the two it's not something that labor can win on but it's something that the tories can lose on well it's labor home, it's definitely labor home territory if you ask people which are the two main parties they trust on the NHS? I mean, Labour... Right, to- but I, get, I guess what I'm getting at is the hypothesis is Labour are kind of assumed to be good on the NHS, mm. and that's not enough to win elections. The Tories, if they are sufficiently bad on it, on the NHS, can do particularly can do badly, but as long as they're sort of somewhere near Labour on it, then they have the potential for winning over a lot of voters who... Um, wouldn't otherwise give them the time of day. I don't know. I guess that's a hypothesis. Yeah, I, I think that's sure. a fair. I think it's a fair hypothesis. Yeah. I mean, I, you saw that with David Cameron. I mean, before Brexit even happened, he was trying to make very clear. I'll, that I'll, cut, I'll cut the de- the deficit, the debt, whichever it was, not the not, NHS. Not the, NH- not the NHS exactly. And I'm, I'm sure that there's a bit of that going on here as well. Um, I mean, we'll come to it in a moment. Um, but you know, I'm sure that the, the Tories are looking at this you know, both in terms of policy. Uh, from a policy perspective, I'm sure Jeremy Hunt is, you know, saying to the Prime Minister, "Look, there's a problem here." Um, Jeremy Hunt being the Health Secretary, of course, but also I'm sure they're looking at some of these numbers and um, uh, and what the public think of the NHS, and they're concerned. 
Um, so, I mean, if, if we go if we go into some of those numbers, for example, now there's going to be a, a survey that I come back to uh, a fair bit, which was um, from 2017, run by Ipsos Mori for the, on behalf of the King's Fund. Now, this was a survey of more than a thousand. It says adults aged 15 and over. I think that's probably a little bit of a uh, sort of misleading uh, description of the methodology there. But you know, more than more than a thousand um, English respondents interviewed in August 2017. Um, and there's there's a, there's a whole host of things in there. I mean, there's again, there's a real striking commitment to the NHS as an institution. Seventy-seven percent believe it's quote crucial to the British society. We must do everything we can to maintain it. Ninety um, percent say the NHS should be free at the point of delivery. Sixty-seven percent say definitely to that. Twenty-three uh, percent say positive. And I won't go through all of them, but there's a whole host of statements around you know the principles underpinning the NHS, and there's a whole lot of commitment to it. But there's also a whole lot, um, a whole lot of concern as well. Um, so, I mean, if we look at the British Social Attitudes um, study, for example, fifty-seven um, percent are satisfied uh, with the NHS, which is down six points year on year. Um, dissatisfaction is at twenty-nine percent, um, which is up from eighteen when uh, the last Labour government um, left office. Uh, it's not quite as high uh, a dissatisfaction with the NHS service as it was when um, the Tories left office last. So in 1997, 50% were dissatisfied with the service. And it's, I mean, it's worth sort of pausing to reiterate those numbers. Um, I think we should we should tweet out this chart. I'll um, just just look at it now. But it's really striking how um, dissatisfaction sort of from the late 80s right through to the also the mid 80s right through to the mid 90s was dissatisfaction was consistently between i guess what 38 percent or so and 50 percent never never lower than that and then just over the labor years it just not not quite year on year fall but a pretty consistent long-term fall right the way down to by 2010 it was only it was below 20 percent were dissatisfied so dissatisfaction more than halved and really striking how much it fell and it sort of you know, it basically stayed at that quite low level for a few years, but now it's just what just last year it's it's ticked up again. Yeah, I mean, it's worth pointing out the British Social Attitude Survey is is a, is a survey run by Natsen and has been run for decades. So the good thing about it is that you can you can track over time as as Leo has just been doing um, how 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 things are how things are going. Um, and yeah, and look, we're the first people on this podcast to say that you know, correlation does not equal causation, right? We're the first people to sort of pour scorn on saying because X happened, Y happened. But you look at the money that the last Labour government put into the NHS and you look at the, how dissatisfaction dropped from 50% to 18% during the life cycle of uh, the Blair-Brown government, I don't think it takes genius to work out what was going on there. And now it's back up to 29% dissatisfied. Um, there's clearly um, there's clearly an issue. But... Um, but going back to um, some other polling data um, that's out there on, on the issues at hand at the moment, there's a poll by YouGov uh, for 38 Degrees, which is a, a campaigning organisation that's of the left. I think it's probably fair to say. So you bear that bear that in mind. 85 um, percent um, are concerned. So when we say to what extent are you concerned, if at all, about the level of funding for the NHS, 85 percent are concerned, 40 percent very concerned. Um, if you look at Comrades, they did a poll in June. Um, do you think the quality of service in the NHS has improved or declined since 2010, or has it stayed the same? 55% um, say it's declined. 28% say it's stayed the same. 9% say it's improved. Um, even 45% of Tory voters say that the uh, standard of care in the NHS um, has declined. So, I guess whichever way you kind of look at things, um, there is a lot of um, there is a lot of concern out there about about funding in the NHS. So, so that's all true. I mean, I think 
I'm I'm skeptical about this 38 degrees survey and just reading too much into it just on the basis that it's a free hit if you ask someone to say how concerned are you about this thing I mean it doesn't really tell you mu that much because there's no trade-off for someone to say oh yeah I'm concerned about it when they're answering the poll you need to have it compared with anything else or there's got to there's got to be some choice and I guess the question we're really interested in here is uh, do people think the services decline sufficiently or are they concerned sufficiently that they're willing to pay more in tax? And mm -hmm. how do they feel about that proposal? I think, you know, obviously that's the crux of this week's debate. I think that's true. I think that, you know, again, we have to bear in mind with these polls, um, you know, who's commissioning them? What, is there an agenda there? And I don't think necessarily, though, that just because it's 38 degrees or it's the King's Fund or it's Organisation X, we, we, can, we, we necessarily go on to then dismiss that poll. So I mean, No, but that's not what I'm saying. I'm not dismissing the poll because of who it's from. I'm dismissing it because I think the question wording mm. is written to get the particular answer that they want. So, for example, the British Social Attitude Survey um, in, in 2017 found that 86% um, of people thought there was a major or severe funding problem in the, in, in, in the NHS, right? So... Um, okay, it's not the same thing as concern, it's different question wording, but I think the point is that it, it's not hard to, to produce data that shows a lot of people Yeah, it's clear worried. that people love the NHS and think that it's in trouble at the moment. That's yeah. definitely true. Um, but on, on, on the question, of, of the, if we fast forward to um, the government's policy, so at, at the moment it's a bit unclear, as you sort of alluded to in your introduction, as to what it is, uh, specifically in terms of the... Um, the money going in we know that more money is going in but we don't know kind of where it's exactly coming from but there is broad there is broad support for the policy in principle so we, um, there's a poll by sky data which was um a thousand and seventy uh, text messages um which was sort of conducted as a flash poll um after the government's announcement and that found that 54 percent um supported um increasing taxes on people like you to pay for an extra 20 billion per year for the NHS, 54% supported that, 38% opposed. So that's still a chunky number opposing, we should make that point. 7% didn't know. But I think the problem um, with the government's position at the moment, and maybe we can return to that, is that there's a lot of scepticism about how honest they're being with where the money's coming from. So do you think the government is being honest or dishonest with the public regarding where extra funding for the NHS announced yesterday will come from? 31% honest, 54% dishonest, 15% don't know. And it would be easy to dismiss numbers like that and, uh, well, uh, saying, well, people are just sceptical about politicians. And I'm sure there's a bit of that going on, right? Giving a free hit to slag off the government, you might take it. But still, I mean, that would worry me a bit, um, given that the government haven't been that sort of open about where the money's coming from and then on this question of the brexit dividend um close your ears jacob reese mogg um do you think there will be uh, there will or not uh, or will not be a brexit dividend meaning the government would have more money to spend on services such as the nhs after brexit um 34 said will 47 said um will not and 19 said don't know and i suppose uh, fundamentally that shows there's a shall we say a lot of skepticism about um, the idea of a brexit dividend but i suppose you could also equally say one in three thinking that there is one when that's been widely debunked is quite a large number right so i guess i feel like it's been obvious since the last election and probably even before then that at some point the government were going to announce a big cash boost for the nhs because it was it's quite clearly the thing on which they're getting most beaten up and the thing that um is under their control. So given that it's sort of, it was fairly obviously always going to happen, 
um, and probably was going to happen far enough away from the next election that um, the money would start uh, to trickle through and make a difference. Um, it's sort of the way that it's been announced feels quite shockingly bad. Uh, let's let's be blunt in terms of communication. Like if you look back on Labour's 2002 announcement of money for the NHS, where it was absolutely clear that it was going to be paid for with increased national insurance contributions, and it was going to be 40 billion of extra funding over the over over the next five years, um, which uh, you know is a larger larger one than this. And yet Labour were able to uh, present it in a quite straightforward way or way that looked quite straightforward uh, by saying uh, by saying immediately, you're going to pay for it because we all think that it's worthwhile. Now, it seems really striking that the government has looked at the situation, has felt that the public want the extra money, but haven't felt that they can be honest about where it's coming from. And I guess, I mean, I'd be interested in your take. Is this, is this just incompetence that they didn't manage to get their message straight? Or do they genuinely not believe that the public are in a way that, what, 16 years ago they were, uh, prepared to pay more in their taxes for the NHS? So I think, let, 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 let's let's come to the, the, the political questions. I do have a take on that. But I mean, I, I don't see how they could possibly think that the public aren't prepared to pay more. There's overwhelming evidence from data, um, so many different polls that suggest that. I mean, we've talked about the Sky Data one. Um, there's some other numbers um, from this YouGov 38 Degrees um, survey. To what extent would you personally support or oppose an increase in the basic income tax rate? Uh, you pay by 1% to help fund the NHS. And there's a lot going on in that question, and maybe we'll come to that later, um, about you know, how how do people quantify that? Do they know what that will really mean for them? Yeah, the for what it's worth, I do feel that that has followed a couple of questions that the primed respondents to sure, think that the sure. NHS is in crisis. But 66% said they support um, that, 24% oppose. So those are different. Those are different numbers to the Sky Data numbers, uh, more support, so maybe you can take with a pinch of salt. Um but at the same time, um, this King's Fund Ipsos Mori survey, which I referenced earlier, um, which was a face-to-face survey, sort of gold standard of, of, of what this is, um, that had um, 62% um, supporting increased taxes in order to maintain uh, the level of spending needed on the NHS. So there was a question that said, many experts argue that in order to maintain the current level of care and services, uh, spending on the NHS would have to increase. With that in mind, which, um, if any of the following, would you most like to see? And 62% said increased taxes, as I mentioned. Uh, 19% said reduced spending on other services, uh, such as education and welfare. And 12% said um, reduce the level of care and services provided in the NHS. And, uh, and just 12% said that, and 6% said none. Um, now, look, there, there are things missing from that, right? There's more efficiencies in the NHS, which is a glaring miss. I mean, yeah. It gives people the option of something for nothing. But I think the point is, there's a, you can get a good chunk of people to agree that more taxes should uh, should be uh, put into it. Just yeah, to before, I'd be just before you to go into the question on efficiency, I, I, my guess is people would would not really believe it anymore. I feel like uh, after um, whatever seven, seven eight years of austerity, mm. uh, that was um, where there was a lot of talk of efficiency savings. My guess is the public would be uh, sceptical of uh, a claim that, um, oh, you can just suddenly get some money from efficiency. Yeah, maybe. I mean, if there was a a question which offered you a choice of when efficiencies was one of them, I'm sure a bunch of people would go for it. But there was an, there was another important question in that research, which was in August 2017, like I mentioned, 
they split the sample and, and one one uh, half of the sample got the question I just mentioned, which talks about taxes in general. The other half um, was presented similar options, but about people's own personal circumstances. So 66% said, I would be willing to pay more taxes in order to maintain the level of spending needed. Um, so that's 66% saying that, and then 62% saying increased taxes generally, right? So that, I guess the Which point- is fascinating, right? So, uh, okay, you know, there's a bit of margin of error and so on, but the point is, at the very least, as many people say that they would personally be willing to pay taxes than that taxes go up in general, which yeah. is kind of, kind of surprising and, you know, certainly doesn't feel like, a, oh, yeah, I want this to be funded by someone else. And, and I think, look, we have to be, again, as I alluded to earlier, we have to sort of be cautious about it because- it's very hard to poll on people's individual circumstances because to do that, you'd have to know what, like not only what people earn, but I suppose you'd have to know other information about like people's rent or their mortgage. I mean, it'd be very hard to get in a survey environment to get an accurate reflection on that's a hundred pounds extra a month in your tax or that's 20 quid extra or, or that's 200 pounds extra. You know, I, that would be really hard to do. And obviously in an ideal world, you would do that, wouldn't you? So you actually put, in real terms in front of people but i think that king's fund survey split sample there is quite a good way of at least trying to see if there's any difference between it being you know my taxes versus other people's and the, the labor offer at the moment it should be said uh, i was listening to john mcdonald on the uh, today program uh, i think it was yesterday was was very much talking about reversing corporation tax cuts and um you know, taxing the top five percent right so it, that was very much positioning labor's offer as it's not really going to be about you um, so that, I think that's important. But um, on, you mentioned on the strategy point uh, and, and kind of on the government point, I, I think that they've they've had to make, they've got form here, it should be said. I mean, the manifesto wasn't particularly costed, was it? And we know, we all know about how they rolled out their yeah. flagship policy there and what happened. Yeah. But I, yeah. Think, I think that, you know... Can't blame it on Nick Timothy this time. You can't blame it on Nick Timothy this time, but I, I'm a bit more sympathetic... I think what they've done is they've realized this is a real problem. They're struggling to find the cash and they're trying to get ahead of the story before later. But it's bizarre, right? Because, yeah, it's a real problem, but it's been uh, obviously a real problem for, you know, quite some time, at least a year on the basis of that King's Fund poll. We're in the middle of summer. You know, there isn't a winter crisis at the moment. They've tried to hang it on the 70th anniversary. Mm. But to be honest, the NHS wasn't especially in the news at the moment, you know. Um, if if they uh, if they'd waited another few months, I'm not sure that they were going to take any particular hits from it that they haven't been taking over the last year. Anyway, I mean, I'm not. Mm. I get that they wanted to do a, an anniversary uh, boost, but it does feel a strange way to do it to just rush. I, I it can't out. explain. I can't explain the timing, but I think they've probably reasoned rightly or wrongly that um, we're going to let people know this is coming, and then the detail will follow later, and then when it does. We're, we're owning the policy a bit more um although i mean who knows maybe that's maybe that's me being uh, too generous i mean jeremy hunt on the today program was talking about um there's going to be a 10-year plan and that sort of thing but i suppose on this principle i mean if we bring this all together before we move on in terms of topics i think there's a a really important point which is that look we know the nhs is important to people we know that there's concern about it uh, and we know that there's broad public support for the principle of tax rises um to to pay for it I suppose the real challenge for the government is going to be where do those taxes fall um, and what do they look like in practice? And I suspect there'll be, um, without being the chancellor and knowing whether this is enough, I suspect there'll be a lot of tinkering with um, uh, tax bans and the freezing of 
the top rate or something or um, changing no, personal I mean, tax so allowances and that sort of thing. I don't think it's going to be a penny that. on income tax. You know, Labour obviously demonstrated that it's entirely possible just uh, you know, not, not to sort of fiddle and just come out there and say, you know what? Uh, we've got a problem here. Everyone agrees it's a, a problem and we're going to do something about it. Not, I think yeah. the the weird sort of the thing about what this means for, for current politics is I'm not sure what what the Tories are now able to do on their argument that Labour are uh, pledging spending from a magic money tree. Um, you know, they they obviously that took a hit with their own cost of manifesto last time. But, you know, the idea that... Um, they've just pledged all this money for the NHS without saying where it's coming from, does feel like um, in their ability to hit Labour for um, for wanting to just splash money at stuff without uh, being serious about it. I mean, not really uh, sure how they're going to be able to use that line again. I'm not sure. I think that whatever they promise, Labour will promise more. And therefore, you can always say that's too much. Um, I, take, I take the point that you're that you're making uh, on board but i think they'll always they'll always try that line and it's a, it's a line where labor's vulnerable um i think it's gonna be far more important to the government's re-election chances what happens with brexit and just before we go on to the next topics i do know we need to move on um you know i think another motivator for this the timing now is probably to give the boris johnsons and michael goves that line where they can now go out and say we are going to spend 350 million pounds a week more on the nhs i mean yes people will hotly contest to put it bluntly to put it politely sorry uh where that whether that money's coming from brexit at all but at least now they're not vulnerable to the where's that 350 million coming from, when when's that coming because that's what i was saying to people on, online where, where is the where is the money at least at least now they'll be able to say well it is coming and then, they, then people can argue over the details um but let's move on um because we've done that to death but i mean an interesting topic um one uh one area that's uh, been in the news which often isn't is drugs policy so uh, this all came about this week uh, because the mother of a 12-year-old boy, uh, Billy Caldwell, um, was was in the news about uh, her son's seizures um, caused by um, severe epilepsy. And this is Charlotte Caldwell from Northern Ireland, her county Tyrone, um, had went to Canada to buy her, buy her son cannabis oil, um, but it was confiscated when she came back to the UK. Um, and she said this is this really helped her son and reduced the number of his seizures, and it was obviously um, essentially cannabis for medical purposes, right? So medicinal use. Um, the Home Office then returned the drug to Mrs. Cordwell, Mrs. Cordwell, and her son, um, and they get, get I think they're giving it to her under a sort of special license. But this 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 uh, sort of real world example, as so often happens, has reignited the, the debate about drugs. William Hague's come out and said that the war on cannabis has been utterly lost and has called for a change in the law. Um, and the government's now looking at that um, with Sajid Javid, uh, interestingly, um, leading the charge. Um, but there's no sign of full legalisation as such. But um, there, there, there is sign of a softening, at least in this area. And I must admit, I, I, uh, this was really interesting to me because I don't, I, I don't think about drugs policy a lot. Um, and there, there's a lot of pitfalls here. There's a lots of. There's a, it's not just actually a legal versus not legal debate. There's lo- there's lots of different versions of this. And I know that you're someone that's worked in drugs policy in the past. And maybe you want to explain a bit about that and uh, some of the different issues going on. Yeah, uh, I think we should start by separate, separating out the two different issues that you've introduced there. So, firstly, there's this question about medical use of. Uh, drugs like cannabis and um, then there's separately from that the uh, question of recreational use. I think on medical use the public opinion evidence is very clear that people overwhelmingly think that it's right that um, 
where there's a, a medical benefit and you know it's prescribed by a doctor and it's regulated and so on that there should be no reason why people uh, shouldn't be able to to use a drug like cannabis um, under various controls. So there was a YouGov poll from last month that uh, quite timely asked this question and got 75% um, saying that they support uh, prescription um, of uh, cannabis specifically for medical use. So that's quite easy. And um, it always does baffle me a bit that you get some uh, drugs campaigners and, um, and kind of commentators saying, um, uh, sort of trying to tie the two issues together and saying that uh, the drug laws mean that um, it's difficult to do medical research or to um, uh, use, uh, 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 get medical use of uh, drugs like cannabis. Um, and therefore, the whole system should be overhauled. I mean, it feels like in the public eye and surely in the uh, in reality, in terms of policy, it should be entirely possible to separate them. And I think that's where a lot of the public are. But as you've said, um, what Hague has done, and I think it really has ignited the debate, is uh, draw attention to the separate question of recreational use. Um, and you know, let's let's get into it a bit. Uh, but just sort of to start with um, that same YouGov poll, let's give a sense of public opinion. Um, so it's not so obvious what people think, um, sort of where the weight of opinion is. So in that poll, um, there was a question about legalisation, and we'll talk about that in a minute. What that means, um, and that found that forty three percent said that they support it and 41% said that they oppose it. This is legalisation of cannabis. And perhaps not surprisingly, um, there's much stronger support among Labour and Lib Dem voters, Remainers, younger people, which in this case means under 50. Uh, so it sort of, it feels like kind of one of those splits that we're seeing a lot in politics at the moment of sort of um, the, the young, the liberal versus the older. Mm. One of the things that struck me from that poll um, was there were some questions around how harmful different drugs are. Um, what was So um, let me get the wording for people. So from what you know, how harmful do you think the following drugs are to people who regularly take them? So for example, heroin, thankfully, 91% acknowledge that heroin is very harmful. And it goes very fairly, so very harmful, fairly harmful, not very, not at all, don't know. And from, from now on, I'm just going to talk about the net harmful, net not non-harmful, because it's the easiest way to describe it. But what really struck me is that cannabis is genuinely seen by the public as less harmful than tobacco and alcohol. And when I say that with a hint of surprise, I, I know people are going to be sh sort of shouting at the sort of uh, at their phone or whatever. Well, it, well, it is or it isn't. But I, I'm just talking about the perception. So 62% considered cannabis harmful, 36%, 35% uh, not harmful. Tobacco is 93% harmful, 4% not. Alcohol, 83% harmful, 15% um, not. And on the cannabis point, I thought my first reaction to those numbers was, oh, well, that's probably because um, yeah, people don't know. People don't have an opinion. But actually, 5% said don't know. So, um, you know, people have an opinion on this. And uh, whether it's an informed opinion, others can judge. But there is genuinely a public sort of perception here that... Um, that it's that it's not as harmful as other things. I mean, do you, do you think that informs the debate? Because something I hear a lot from drugs campaigners is that cannabis, ah, you know, it's not as harmful as alcohol. And I'm never really personally persuaded by that because that may be true. Uh, others could, again, I'm not an expert, but I don't know. Just because you have one public health issue with something that's legal doesn't mean you should decriminalise or legalise something else, does it? I don't know. I don't, I'm not sure I follow that logic. Um, but what, what do we think? 
Right. So I think in the first um, case, just sort of uh, think about the numbers. Uh, my suspicion is people are evaluating the harms of each of them relative to the way in which they're publicly controlled and debated. So, for example, cannabis, people are saying, well, it's a it's a regulated drug. It's a class B drug, uh, but actually it's much less harmful than it's made out to be. So I'm going to mark it down as not especially harmful. Um, alcohol, on the other hand, I suspect a lot of people look at that and say, well, you know, it's completely freely available and look at all the havoc that it wreaks across the country. Now, you've got to bear in mind, of course, that vastly more people use alcohol and also tobacco than use cannabis. So mm. um, I suspect that we shouldn't read into this a careful evaluation of, well, if someone took whatever you consider one dose of alcohol or one session with alcohol versus one session of cannabis and did that um, every, every day for two months, then how would they be at the end of it? Uh, I'm not sure it's that that nuance. I suspect it's sort of, it's also influenced by the reality of the policy environment. Mm. But all of that said, it is absolutely the case that um, what that does read across to is consistently whenever polls have asked this, there is much more interest and willingness to see a softening of the law um, on um, drugs like cannabis, um, I mean, often specifically cannabis, than on drugs like heroin and crack cocaine. So, you know, drugs that are currently class A versus drugs that are currently class B and class C. Um, and that's what um, came across in this poll as well. And I think this is this is sort of a useful point to talk about the different ways they can be dealt with, because I think this is it's a little bit wonky, but actually I think it's really important for the debate because I think it causes a lot of muddled and confused thinking. And I think that's reflected in public opinion. And um, I'll explain why, but I think that it's a reason to be a bit cautious about public opinion. So essentially there are two options on the table in terms of softening the law. Um, Instantly, some drugs campaigners hate the phrase softening, um, but I'm going to use it anyway. Um, so firstly, you can do what's known as decriminalization, where it's still illegal to sell the drugs, but it's no longer a crime to possess them. Um, and the rationale with that is that when someone has got a drug addiction problem, then there's no sort of legal issue about them coming forward to the authorities and say, I've got a problem here. Uh, I need to get help. Or if they're caught, then the police aren't spending time um, trying to punish them. Instead, what the police are doing is trying to get them into treatment. And that's what's done in Portugal. Um, and a lot of people point to the Portugal model. Um, it's, I can't remember exactly when, but I think it's more than 10 years old now. And say, even fairly, even reasonably cautious people point to Portugal and say, well, the sky hasn't fallen in. It hasn't been a disaster. Some people say it's been a triumph, um, and obviously there's some dispute about numbers, but the point is it hasn't led to some massive um, upswing in drug use and, and drug-related problems. So that's decriminalization. Incidentally, it's what the UK has done with what used to be called legal highs. So the, the law that was brought in to, to manage those essentially has decriminalized rather than um, illegalized them. But the other option is legalization. And that's where it's legal to sell and to possess them on the basis that the will or we assume that there'll be regulations about where they can be sold and to who. So that's essentially the same as what we've got on tobacco and alcohol. The question is, how strict are those regulations? And the problem with this is you often get commentators and politicians 
mixing up the two, treating them as if they're interchangeable and basically using an argument from one to make the case from the other. And, um, you know, great example of that this week, Ed Miliband's tweet. I agree with William Haig. Drug, drug legalization is a no-go area, but on public health grounds, we should legalize cannabis, blah, blah, blah. Experience of Portugal suggests use is unlikely to rise. But Portugal hasn't legalized cannabis. Mm. It's decriminalized it. It's a different thing. And that, I think, means that the public really are struggling to get a clear view on this because the uh, the debate is just sort of goes around in circles with people talking about different points. And um, you sort of uh, finally looking back at the poll, what you get is um, this question that said, uh, put the three options on the table for cannabis and 40% said should should stay as it is now. 24% say it should be decriminalized. 27% say it should be legalized. So basically, the only view that um, has a clear plurality is uh, remain criminal. It's not clear whether people are actually comfortable with it with cannabis being legally sold in corner shops or not. And forgive the ignorance, how does this compare to how the policy changed under the Blair government, right? Because didn't he... Blair had it down to category, uh, was it category C? Yeah, that's right. So Brown decided to go back to B again. The label was it went from, uh, it started out as B, it went down to C, and then it came back to B again. Um, And it didn't make any difference, basically. So what was Uh, C? Is C C relevant to what we're talking about or not? No, so C C continues to be illegal to possess. Uh, So that's not going as far as decriminalisation. So it carried on being criminal. Essentially, the difference between the categories is the harshness of the penalties that you get for being caught with right, it. Right, fair enough. Um, and basically, um, you know, the background of all of this is that uh, dr- uh, drug use in general, and particularly cannabis use, has been falling for for a while. Although, um, well, give you some numbers. So, amongst all adults, it um, nearly eleven percent said that they'd used cannabis in the last year in two thousand and two. Uh, now it's about six and a half percent. And that's even more the case among young people, 16 to 24 year olds. It was 28 percent in 1998. Now it's 16 uh, percent. So it's been going down, although actually the truth is it hasn't really moved in the last eight or so years. So it basically fell up to around 2009, 2010, and it's pretty much stopped there. And the whole class B to class C back to class B thing didn't make any difference in that trend. Yeah, that felt like a PR thing for Gordon Brown, perish the thought. But where do you see it going then? Because, I mean, for me, like this has moved quite quickly this week, right? Um, with, with Sajid Javid making a real sort of go of it, it feels like. I wonder why. Um, but, you know, at the same time, this is a thorny issue. I don't see much political upside uh, for a dramatic relook at the drug laws in the UK. And I might be wrong, you might disagree with me. It doesn't see, it feels like, a, I mean, despite what Ed Miliband tweeted, I still feel like most politicians don't really want to go and have a root and branch reform of drug laws. Um, and I do wonder with, uh, with, with Labour and Jeremy Corbyn, I mean, Corbyn might be different, I'm not sure. Um, but you know, this is, this is, I wonder whether drugs policy can be a bit of a proxy for other things. So, okay, Labour says we, the war on drugs is lost, we need to sort of liberalise our drug laws. Well, well, that might have some public support. There might be sort of an acceptance in public opinion for some of those arguments. I wonder whether there's a negative knock-on effect to what it says about the Labour brand in areas like law and order that, um, you know, fair or unfair, uh, would, would damage Labour and they wouldn't really want to go there. Um, maybe Corbyn's the guy to, to go that way. I don't know. What do you think? 
Right. Well, that's always been the worry for uh, for Labour leaders. Um, the Lib Dems uh, have generally been the only party that's been prepared to go past it. But essentially, um, there has often been a view in Labour circles that it's the right thing to do to decriminalise. I think not not to legalise. I think mm. I think it's been generally thought that decriminalisation would be the right thing to do. And um, there has been a feeling that they're going to get badly hit if they do do that. And I think, I think you put your, your, um, your finger on it there, that it's, um, it's not so much about the sort of the policy impact itself, but it's about what it says about a leader that would be seen and attacked as being out of touch with ordinary people's concerns, who's taking a view that's popular in the, um, uh, the dinner, um, the dinner parties of Islington, but actually has got no, no experience of life on, uh, tough estates and doesn't know that this is just going to be a, uh, ticket for teenagers to run wild or whatever and parents aren't going to be able to tell them that it's illegal so they shouldn't do it so there's always been that fear i think the fact that potentially the public are more supportive of it now than they were in the past i'm not sure that that is actually something that we can say with certainty because the polls have been frustratingly inconsistent in how they've asked it so i don't think we have good long-term data on it but i think it feels believable that um it's become uh, people are a bit more sympathetic to it. I mean, not least just because of generational and demographic change. Uh, but I guess the issue is it's sort of you can see you can see lots of downsides um, that actually making a change. There will definitely be negative stories. There will definitely be people who will start taking drugs for the first time or take, taking cannabis for the first time, and there will be people who will develop mental health problems uh, because of it. Um, and it's not totally obvious what the upside will be. Um, I think unless there's quite clear political consensus, and, and the reason I think why none of the parties, uh, neither of the main parties have really wanted to go for it is they've always feared being attacked by the other party. Now, if the Tories went for it, then I'm sure Labour would get on board and basically just say it's got to be done right. The fear will be if Labour went first, that um, the Tories would attack them for being weak on law and order. Mm-hmm. So essentially, if the Tories do seriously move on this, then I think it it probably does happen. But until they do, I'm really not convinced that it's going to change as something that governments are going to do. No fields of weed for the Prime Minister then, maybe. You'll stick to the wheat. Um, last couple of minutes, we've run over a little bit of what we normally do, but last couple of minutes, I did want to touch on one other story that's been in the news this week about... Um, uh, in America about um, the separation of families uh, of immigrants crossing the American border. And uh, Donald Trump, has, President Trump, has come under a lot of fire for this, uh, as you'd expect. I mean, who can't be moved, who wouldn't be moved by the um, uh, by, by the sort of audio recordings and video recordings of uh, crying children being separated from their parents, of course, right? Um, and I just wanted to touch on some of the polling around this because um, there's a bunch of different polls that have come out and, and pretty much universally two-thirds opposing this policy of separating families crossing the border and holding the children and parents in different facilities while they await trial. Um, so CBS have got a poll, 67% oppose this. CNN, 67% opposed. Quinnipiac, 66% opposed. Uh, Ipsos, 55% opposed, are slightly different. But I just wanted to touch on some of those numbers, not not too much depth, but just to sort of reiterate the point that we were kind of alluding to last week when we were talking about Trump, that just because he's having some wins in policy terms doesn't mean that actually he's overwhelmingly popular. His immigration policies, wall or no wall, are not popular in America. And I think it's important for people to... Uh, 
uh, people to re- remember that when they're looking at you know his, his grandstanding. And I think he's acknowledged that tonight because he, sa- he says he's going to sign an executive order to keep families together. Well, I don't think he needs to. But anyway, I mean, do, what did you make of some of that? I mean, briefly, we haven't got long left. but Right, so I've been getting frustrated by how some of the pub- US public opinion about this has been reported over here. And that's because it's been presented as quite a, well, the US is divided, Trump's people love him, other people hate him. And I think it is more complicated than that, that he's been getting the opposition in the four polls that you mentioned among Republicans is between 32 and 39 percent. And because I haven't seen all the question wordings, but I know that in the Quinnipiac poll, which had 35 percent Republican opposition, the question was worded quite explicitly as this is a Trump administration policy. Now, given the depth of partisanship in the US, for a policy to be identified particularly with with a side and to get 35% opposition from that side to it does strike me as a sign of a really deeply unpopular policy that is going to be doing damage to the party. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think it just it just serves to show that just because, like as I said at the introduction to this topic, just because Trump's having some wins with Korea and the economy, and I'm not for a second suggesting that he won't win re-election, maybe he will, um, don't assume that just because his core support likes something that the majority of Americans do, because it's usually and not... And even some of his core support, don't And even some of his core support, because it's usually not true. And on immigration, he might talk about his wall a lot, but actually it's pretty controversial and pretty unpopular. But I'm sure we'll, we'll return to that topic another week in more detail. But um, for now, thanks, Leo, for joining me on this week's uh, Polling Matters uh, PoliticalBetting.com podcast. If you like what you hear again, please do share us on social media. It really helps us get the podcast out there. Give us a like on our Facebook page or on iTunes and a positive rating, please. Um, like I say, it all shares shares the wealth, shares the podcast news. And uh, do suggest guests and um, um, future topics. We'd love to hear from you. Um, just uh, hit, hit me or Leo up on uh, Twitter and I'm sure we can do something. But for now, have a great, great week, everyone, and thanks for listening.